Benjamin Franklin once said, the bitterness of poor quality remains long after the sweetness of low price is forgotten. The fact is, quality matters. Join us as we make quality fun, interesting, and accessible to companies of all levels. Quality matters is a must-listen for all things quality. Listen in, ask questions, and get back to doing what matters most. Quality Matters, brought to you by Texas Quality Assurance, where quality management gets simplified. Hello, and welcome back to the Quality Matters podcast. I am Kyle Chambers uh, from Texas Quality Assurance and your host for the Quality Matters podcast. So what we're going to be doing today is continuing on from our last episode, kind of introducing the idea of consultation. I know we kind of took a few weeks to go through what the gap assessment is, what we're looking at, but I really cannot overemphasize how important that assessment is. And again, how important it is to understand the existing business practices and then start trying to figure out where we already might be compliant. It could be something as simple as we simply need a procedure that says we do the things we already do. Um, it's just, I really can't overemphasize it. You know, the first few years that I did any consultation work, um, it actually started out when I was working for previous company where, where I got thrown into the mix of all of this stuff. Um, we had a, a, a supplier that's very, very critical to our business, very critical to our business operations. If you're in the gas turbine world, you know that the coatings that you apply to these parts can be one of the most critical things you do because they often fire these gas turbines. It's so fascinating. It really is. They often fire these gas turbines above the melting temperature of these alloys. And so in order to keep these alloys from just disintegrating into liquid metal inside the turbine, they put very special coatings on them to protect against heat, to protect against corrosion and all this different stuff, um, as well as run cooling holes, which I find really funny calling them cooling holes because they run six or 700 degree air through the turbine, but that cool through the blades, but that actually cools it down. Any case, we had a supplier that was involved in this, this area and they really needed some, uh, some help getting um, ISO certified because again, they were very critical to our operations. We wanted to make sure that they had a good operation going forward. So we actually did a lot of consulting work for them. And I was, you know, the quality manager, I'm the one picked for it um, as well. You know, some of the first consultation gigs that I did on my own after leaving and, and doing a Texas quality assurance full time, I'll be honest with you, didn't do the best job. Because uh, I understood the requirements and understood where we needed to be. And I even understood the steps getting there. But going from that starting point, that's a big gap. And that's really the key in gap assessment is it's not it's not only that we're finding the gaps in compliances, which is really what people think about. But we're filling in our own gaps. How on earth am I going to get you from A to Z if I don't know what B, C, D, and E are? I, I just can't get there. So it's really where the gap assessment is. It's just really important. Um, but so let's assume that now you've gone through this, you've interviewed folks in your, your team, and you've got a good understanding of how they run their business. Well, now it's time to sit down and start figuring out how to implement it. So there's a lot of different uh, kind of meetings that we'll schedule and things that will occur. So I'll kind of give you an overview of some of those. For one, we're going to need to sit down and talk context of the organization. It's a really weird clause, really, really weird clause, um, because a lot of it seems common sense for existing businesses. For new businesses, maybe you're getting into new business opportunities, new ventures, kind of branching out. Yeah, it, it kind of makes sense. Otherwise, it's really hard to understand. 
And we really just need to sit down and, and outline these things. So I'm not going to spend too much time on this today. We'll have another episode to talk about context, but it is one of the first things we need to do because we kind of want to a get it out of the way and then b talking about it up front and being really clear of who we are and what we do is helpful um but i want to see if i can actually get a guest on the podcast to talk a little bit about context we don't have that arranged just yet so i'm going to skip that one for today um today though what we're going to talk about is documented information because immediately following your know, reviewing context and it even can be before um, we want to talk documented information. Documented information is really, truly critical. It is, unfortunately, maybe fortunately, the, the foundation that our whole management system is, is built on. Now, you may say, well, well, Kyle, you can have a management system without all the documentation and processes, just people doing a good job. Yeah, to a degree and with really good people, yes, but documentation is what makes it consistent. Documentation is what allows a good quarter, a good year to be scaled across a decade and to be scaled across multiple decades. So we, we have to document these things and document when they change. Now, you may be saying, because I'm going to work from the ISO 9001 2015 standard today, you may be saying, well, well, Kyle, we're doing 17025 or we're doing API Q1 or we've got ASME. We've got some any of these other management system standards. The requirements really don't change. The language does. We use different words. For one, in API, we're going to call them documents and records. And in 9001, we're calling them document and information. It's really good reasons for some of that, some bad reasons for some of it. But we're going to focus on the good ones because that's what matters for you guys if you're trying to put this in place in your team. <laughs> Document information is kind of a weird term, and all it means is anything that, that we document, we write down, or even is generated by a, a computer system. Um, document information, I do like the term now more than it did when it first came out in 2015, because there is a blurry line between a template and a document and a record that sometimes is, is hard to capture when we use the explicit terms documents and records. An example, we had this come up with one of our clients recently. Um, they wanted us to put form numbers on the forms within our QMS software. So if you don't know, Texas Quality Assurance, we actually got our start by building quality management software. So we've been building quality management software um, since 2013, and I've been doing this full-time since, since 2016. Anyways, so one of the things they wanted to do is have a form number and a version number on the electronic forms of the software, which I understand the request. It's something I've thought about before, but I've never had an auditor actually request it. So it wasn't something we'd really put much consideration into doing. And this auditor wasn't pushing it just for us. This auditor was also pushing it for their ERP, their financial system. Any document, any report, any record that got generated from that system, he wanted to have a document ID and number and traceability on it. And to a degree, I, I can't say that I disagree that the standard wouldn't want that. But my question is, is like, how far do we need to go? Um, so that is an extreme it can go to. In this instance, though, I might argue that was too far. And we'll explain that a little bit more later. But what the standard wants is it wants you to identify documents that need controlled. So we've all heard this term controlled documents. Okay. What this means is we've got some documents that we want to protect from unintentional alteration. We want to make certain that it's been reviewed and approved 
by whomever we've detained, determined, deemed, if I can get those two words right without combining them, detained, <laughs> that we've determined or deemed appropriate. Um, and this is going to be things like your, your template documents. Maybe you've got a template for your, your drawings and inspection forms and so forth. Your procedures, your work instructions, your process specifications, your manuals, these have to be controlled. We can't have someone randomly editing them and approving them and not knowing which version is current. It's just kind of common sense. It can be a little difficult and it can be way overly complicated. Now, there are some needs for complication in some teams, but uh, others there's not. So I'll tell you a little bit about how we number the documentation. So when we do a consultation project, one of the things that we, we first do is we ask which standard are we going for certification to? Well, duh, of course, what else are you going to consult to? But in some instances, maybe someone's going for 9001 in Q1 or maybe 9001 in 13.45 or 17.025 or any other slew of numbers that we want to throw out there. And so we'll ask them, well, which one of these standards are your customers really looking for? Which one of these are you most accustomed to working with? And it may seem a little odd question, but I like, and this is preference, by no means you're required to do this. I like to number my procedures in accordance with the clause of the standard that procedure most closely aligns with. And I say most closely because there's a lot of interconnectivity between these things. Um, but let's say, for instance, we are writing a procedure on control of non-conforming outputs. Well, let's take a look here real quick, actually, at the ISO 9001 standard. So let's take a look real quick and we'll see what it says. Sorry, I probably should have had this pulled up to begin with. I always hate when I have to watch people scroll. But we're going to take a look at the non-conforming outputs clause. That is clause 8.7. So guess what I'm going to name my procedure for non control of non-conforming outputs. It's going to control non-conforming materials. Um, could even control uh, safety incidents that don't require accident investigation. This can control a lot of things. Maybe it's going to control our customer issues, our non-conforming product, our scrap material, our reworks. I prefer to use this one process for all of those things. Why have multiple procedures when you can have one? And especially if you do a good job writing your procedures, it's only going to be two, three, maybe four pages long. I don't like long, lengthy procedures. It doesn't do many people many benefits. So what I'm going to name this procedure is it's going to likely be a three-digit prefix for the company name. Of course, you can have your own naming system. This is what I do. Three-digit prefix for the company name. So let's say for uh, Texas Quality Assurance, it'd be TQA. TQA-PRO, because this is a process procedure. Um, and then a four-digit number. And in this case, that number is going to be 8700. Or maybe we would do it 08700 because there is a clause 10. <clears throat> so we've done it both ways, but you get the idea. Then you might say, well, Kyle, what if you need a second procedure on control of non-conforming outputs? Maybe we've got kind of two different uh, business units here, and we really treat our non-conforming outputs in the production process very differently than we do over in our warehouse or the administrative processes. And I have a client right now we're working with where that is the case. And everything that happens on the production floor runs through a very elaborate conveyor belt system. And so what they wind up doing is they, they capture those non-conformities in the computer system there and report on it separately great we'll control it that way so for them we're actually only going to have an extra paragraph in the procedure that defines how we record those datas that data from the production process but maybe you need a second procedure maybe you need an rma process 
that would fall here in this non-conforming outputs process is we need an RMA, but not every NCR needs an RMA, RMA return merchandise authorization, right? Um, well, then you would have another procedure and we would name that one 0871. If we had another one, 0872. And if you need more than nine or 10 procedures for a single process, I'd argue we're getting a little too complicated. We need to scale this sucker back a little bit. So that's it. It's it's really, it's pretty straightforward. This is what we're going to talk about for, for document naming. Now, I have done it before and worked with teams where the document number is purely arbitrary. Um, perhaps it's random uh, generated. Maybe it's just sequential. Or maybe the numbers in the 1,000s mean something and the 2,000s mean something. And we do this to a degree as well. Say when I'm writing safety procedures for uh, for a health and safety consultation that we're doing, I'll actually number those safety procedures in the 2,000s. I'll number the environmental procedures in the 3,000s. Um, and the reason being is there's not a specific ISO clause for power industrial trucks. There's just a clause in 45,001 that talks about meeting legal requirements and communication and participation, but the standard itself doesn't care about industrial trucks. Standard itself doesn't care about hazardous communication or PPE. And I've got a lot of these procedures that we have to write. So I'll just number those sequentially in the 2000s. The benefit I get from numbering my procedures according to the standard really comes into play when we're working with an ISO auditor. If we can make that external ISO process a little bit easier for ourselves. It allows us to get more benefit from that audit as opposed to just being a sparring match the whole time. Don't get me wrong. Sometimes that sparring match is fun and you can learn things from it as well. But if it's immediately obvious to the auditor, the clause of the standard that this procedure is talking about, it makes it a lot easier for him to write his report. Having done the third-party auditing for a while, I can tell you, you're going to go through and write this largely in alignment with the standard because you've got to check you hit all of these different clauses. So it makes it really, really easy for that auditor to write their report. If the auditor's got more time and he's to write the report, more time to talk with you to help you understand the process. All right. Next thing that we have to do with our documentation is it has to be identifiable. Now, it's kind of a weird, weird way to put it. Let me see if I can find that clause here in the standard real quick. Give me just a moment to do a little bit of mindless scroll. I'll try to do this off screen so I'm not giving anyone a headache. Doo -doo -doo. Sorry, I used to have all of these clauses about perfectly memorized, but I've worked with a few too many standards recently and all kind of blurs together. Lord knows I'm not looking forward to, uh, to old age. I'm going to have a hard time there. All right, so documented information. Let's take a look at the standard here. For those of you not listening, I'm going to tell you what I'm showing on the screen. So don't, don't worry about it. If you are listening to this on, say, iTunes or Spotify or Audible, everything's on YouTube as well. So you can take a look there. If there's something you want to see, no problem at all. But right now, we're pulling from Clause 7.5 of the ISO 9001 standard. So pretty basic, giving you basic requirements for documented information. The organization's quality management system shall include, you got no choice. We got the shall word there shall include document information required by this international standard. You know the easy way to find that? Search for the word shall, and it'll give you a list of everything. Document information determined by the organization to be necessary. Okay, so whatever the standard says and whatever you determine is necessary. All right, then we talked about creating and updating. Here is what we want to get to, is when creating and updating document information, the organization shall ensure 
appropriate. So that means you get to determine it. And if you get to determine it, you got to document it in a procedure. So our document and information procedure is where we're going to say what is appropriate. And what is appropriate may be different for some of our drawings generated from something like SolidWorks or AutoCAD. And you've got this big vault system or whatever that we're working with that appropriate controls may be different if it's a software generated system where we have no personal control over that form of the data it has at all. Um, but we need appropriate identification and description. So their example they give here is title, date, author, or reference number. We need to be able to somehow segregate that procedure against all of the others. Now, I've worked with companies before who do not like putting a document number on the document. I'm a huge fan of a document number. They don't want to put a document number on the document. They want to reference it by name and by approval date. And that can work. That can work just fine and dandy. The only problem is if you change or modify the name of that document, it's really now a new document and you really should obsolete the old one and do this one as the first version. And so it gets a little complicated there. But if on the other hand, our primary, again, this is coming from my experience as a, uh, a sysadmin, database administrator in a you know, previous career, is you have to have what we call a primary key. Primary key means if I'm going to go look up this record in the database, what's the one number that's going to get me the one result or the two numbers combined, they'll get me one result would be, you know, secondary keys or in any case. Um, so we want to make it easy to find what we're looking for. And if it means that you never get to change that document name or that kind of hurts, sometimes we need to modify the name a little bit. Maybe not that big of a deal, but maybe if it's only for consistency's sake, maybe some of our procedures have the word procedure in the name and others don't. And we want to make it consistent. Ah, now I've got to create a brand new document. So gets messy. I strongly suggest a document ID. When it comes to things like forms, if that form is specifically related to a process, I'd argue, why not name that non-conformance report form 08? 701, your RMA form, 08702. Maybe you've got a simplified form for your warehouse, 0873, whatever it may be. The rest of your forms, let's do the same thing. Let's just do the arbitrary numeric naming. Say we've got a, uh, um, a form for new hire orientation. I suppose we could try real hard to find where that fits in with the ISO clauses, but why not name it 1001? Maybe you've got a, uh, a Word template. We're going to name that 1002. If you've got an Excel template, we're going to name that 1003. And again, we've got our safety forms, our environmental forms. Why not name those in the 2000s, in the 3000s? You're going to have a hard time running out of numbers, I promise you. So it's got to be identifiable. We also have to understand the format. So this is how we're going to document it within our procedure. Well, what format? Are our procedures going to be in all English? Are our forms going to be in all English? Are we going to do dual language? Do we do, do dual language for everything or only for this class of documents and this class of information? Maybe we want to make certain that all of our company bulletins are in English and Spanish. Um, I had a, a client before that had a, a lot of work in Brazil, so everything was in English and Portuguese. Um, Maybe, it, and again, it, it depends. You have to determine what's right for your organization and document it. And whatever is right, you just got to know your team, know your people. I wouldn't argue that every single procedure needs to be in Spanish if you've got a lot of guys that don't speak real good English on the floor, but all of the management team and staff 
does speak English well and not a problem. But on the other hand, if we've got folks that don't understand the language and, and the company is in agreement that we will hire people that don't speak English, well, it, it just depends on what they need access to. Any case, so we want to talk about that. We want to talk about format. Is this an electronic document that's automatically generated? Let's say that this is a purchase order that's generated from our ERP, and we really have no ability to modify that purchase order form. Well, there's probably not a whole lot we can do about it. I say we just list in our document information procedure that electronic forms from the ERP are generated and controlled via the software company that manufactures it, and we have no control over it. There you go. We're straightforward. On the other hand, let's say you've got an IT guy there who's really fantastic with, say, crystal reports or something like that. That used to be me. <laughs> and he's modifying the form and doing all sorts of fun stuff with it, and recreating it and regenerating it. Ah, we really need to track it. Um, we've got a customer right now that is in that scenario. So while they've got our TQA Cloud QMS software, they also have another tool that they use for field service work, and they can create their own checklists and, and things of that nature in that tool. Fantastic. They've got a great tool. It does a good job for them. Um, we want to make certain that we use it. So what we're going to what we told them to do is we said, look, whenever you make a change to these electronic forms, just issue an MOC and reference that form name and who approved the document. And then we can track the changes that way. And I said, you need to track the change on that document as well from your, uh, your system. Now, they don't have just a ton of these and they don't change very often, but they do change some. We want some traceability of those changes. All right. So another requirement that they have here is we must review and improve for suitability and adequacy. All right. Pretty straightforward. Who approves the documents? What are they looking for when they approve them? And how do you note that they've been approved? Not too terribly bad. So simple ways to do this. You could identify that any document, this, you could go down to the individual document level and say who has to approve it. You could do it by class of documents. So I'll tell you a little bit about what we do in our QMS software. Anything we do in the QMS software can be replicated on an Excel spreadsheet in a procedure. And of course, if you want to take a look at purchasing TQA Cloud, let me know. We've got some you know great opportunities to, to get you on board, get you running with it. Document control is really kind of the foundation of it. But anything I say here can be done over an Excel spreadsheet or a word procedure, anything of the, that nature as well. So what we do is we identify who are the required approvers for this document. And we've kind of got them uh, grouped. Say we've got a required approval path for process procedures. We've got a required approval path for engineering forms. We've got a required approval path for our technical drawings. We've got one for our general forms and documents. We've got one for our templates. And each of those may list two, three, four people, maybe just one person that needs to review it and approve it before it's approved in the document information system. Pretty simple. You need to keep track of who approved it. Maybe it's a paper record and you keep it stashed away in a notebook. <clears throat> I don't like doing it that way. It's kind of tedious and time consuming and, you know, it's paperwork to keep up with. Lord knows everyone's wanting to get a word paperwork today, but it works. So if it works for you, don't knock it. And this is a guy selling software saying if paper works for you, don't knock it. It works. Um, another way that a lot of folks do it is they'll have a, a, a network file share. 
And this is real, real common with network file share. So again, anyone listening, you'll see me kind of move my hands around all over the place. But we're going to have a few standard folders within a network file share. Again, not my preferred way to do it, but it works if you've got someone to manage it. So we have a folder over here that has all of our uh, working documents, typically term people use for working documents. So what this means is this is the editable word version of the most recent version of our document. Maybe we're editing it as a draft, ready to approve it, but this is the working documents over here. Not a whole lot of people have access to it. Um, and, you know, but that's where it is. And this is the latest editable version. Then we've got a PDF version over here. And this PDF version is nothing but the approved version of that working document. And we make this available for everyone. And we all understand when we do PDF, that way someone can't accidentally edit the real document. They're, they're only downloading the, the printable one. Yes, I know you can edit PDFs and it's getting more common these days, but it's still kind of a pain. I'm a computer geek and I truly hate editing PDFs. So I highly doubt many of the folks in your organization are just jumping for joy with a PDF editor. All right. So you've got those two folders. Then you're going to have a third folder. That third folder is your archive documents because you really don't want, if you're on version five of a document, you don't want version four, three, two, one being really easy for someone to grab because if they can mess up, they will mess up. Um, we're going to do an episode soon kind of talking about testing, how we test our software for a quality management system. And truly, one of the ways we do it is we get our grandmothers and our children to test the software because they're going to do dumb things that we wouldn't have thought anyone would try to do. So you do want to do a little bit of stupid proofing of your system. One of the best ways to stupid proof your document information system is don't keep the minor or the uh, previous versions right there with the published major version. Bad stuff will happen, I promise you. Then we're going to have a fourth folder most of the time, and this is going to be our obsolete documents. So maybe we've we've marked them as obsolete. We don't want to use them no more. If we don't want to use them no more, we don't want them in front of someone. Even if you put the watermark obsolete, do not use, I promise you someone will print it and they'll say, well, this is what I've always used, and no one told me not to use it, even though the obsolete do not use watermark is on it. Um, so we want to make sure those obsolete documents are removed from main public view as well. That's how we're going to do it on a network file share. The other way would be a document information management system like TQA Cloud. I swear, not just a cheesy sales pitch for it. We are by no means only folks that offer it, but I am really proud of what we have. I'll say that at least. But the way we do it there is that all of those document numbers are stacked right on top of each other. So it's the same type thing though, is the previous versions of the document are not easily accessible. The document is read-only for folks with read-only access, which is pretty much why we create the PDFs is for all of those read-only folks out there. And the great thing about a good document information management system is it prevents folks from easily and commonly storing copies on their desktop. It's all there. Why do I even need to put it on my desktop if I can create a link to it and go get it or I just have a pre-safe filter or whatever it is? Those are kind of the ways that we want to track it. But again, this is so far still only talking about our documents. Our documents, these are the controlled document and information. These are the things that when we go take a look at the standard here, that we have to have identification, format, review for approval and suitability. All right. Well, what about all of the rest of our stuff? We've got tons of records. Okay. Well, records is pretty simple. We need to, and this is stuff you have to document in your procedure distribution, access, retrieval, and use. Who's allowed to get it? 
how do they get it? How do we control it? This is where a meeting with your IT group can be really handy because maybe we don't want certain departments having access to other documents. I will say that can be taken to an extreme. If you start securing it because, hey, Kyle said I have to secure it, slap yourself for me because I didn't say that. Um, what it is is you just want to secure documents um, from someone else if there's intellectual property reasons they shouldn't get there or just ease of use and you want to make their job simple for them because they don't spend a lot of time on the computer and what little bit of time they do spend on the computer, man, we want them to find what we're looking for real quick. But unless one of those two reasons are why you're blocking access to documents, I say don't. You're not doing yourself any benefit. You're just making it really difficult, and you're going to wind up with a lot of those conversations of, hey, can you download such and such and email it to me and get me that because I don't have access to it. And that Once in a while, fine, but what happens is it becomes real common. So we want to make sure that we identify who gets access to these. How do they get them? Where do they go? Do they go to a binder up on the wall? Do they go to the QMS software? Where do they go? What do they do? Then we want to talk about changes. All right, so let's say we have to change things. How do we change it? And then we talk about uh, disposition and retention. How long do we keep our records? I don't know. I argue you should probably keep everything for at least five years, although the standard here doesn't say that. So you get to determine how long to keep it. Um, some things to take into consideration there when we're setting these uh, retrieval rules is do we have any warranties we provide that would require us to keep it for a longer period of time? It's a real good reason. Maybe has medical information on it. Well, medical information, I forget, it is either 30 or 40 years past the last date of employment of that employee. And yes, exaggerated example here, but this does mean if you had an employee get injured on the first day of his job, he worked there for 20 years, then retired, you got to keep those records for at least 50 years, all in all. You better make sure that's documented. Um, another example might be maybe we've uh, got an outage cycle with our customers, and we need to make sure that we keep last time's records until at least we go through the outage season this time. Can't tell I come from the gas turbine world. That's the way it was. But you get to determine these based on what's good for your business. The standard here is not telling me anything I have to do. Obviously, if the standard you're going towards does have retention requirements for certain types of documents, well, there you go. You've got to keep them at least that long. It's it's fairly straightforward. But our document information process really isn't all that difficult. Um, and if we tag each document, again, whether it's being tagged in a document information system, if it's being tagged by um, a column in an Excel spreadsheet for the document register we've got, wherever it is, we want to identify who has to review and approve this document when it's changed and modified. We want to make certain that we can identify this document uniquely among other documents. We wanted to note the last time it was um, reviewed or approved. Um, we actually do something slightly different um, for our consultation, unless there's a specific need to do differently for a client, is we'll put published by up there. And the reason I put published by up there is because when you have three or four people reviewing and approving a document, well, one if one of them reviews it on the second, another one reviews it on the fourth, and another one reviews it on the sixth. The document was approved on the sixth, but maybe the changes were last published on the 28th of the previous month. Well, which date do we go with? So it's kind of an doesn't really matter a whole lot as long as we have that approval process documented. 
So I prefer to put the publish date on there. Publish date means this is the date I sent it for approval. If any of those people reviewing the document want changes made to it, we'll make those changes, we'll resubmit for approval, and we will update that publish date to whatever today's date was, not the last date. So you may go through four or five draft iterations before you get it approved. And so if you just update that publish date each time, then if it takes a few days to get it approved, it's not an issue. And this solves a lot of problems that I run into because we want to have a date on there. Um, the standard doesn't say you have to have the date on your document, but having been through a lot of these third-party audits, the auditor always wants to know, when was this document approved? It's just one of the things an auditor looks for. They look for three things. Document name, document number, and approval date. And then, you know, approval date inevitably leads to approved by. But if we've got those three on there, oh, we made our lives easier for, for ourselves, for auditor, for our future selves, everything. So publish date means that when that last person approves the document, I don't need to make any more edits to it. I can just approve it. And it's just approved and it's pushed through in this one less edit I have to make. Again, do I say you have to use a published by? Could you do approved by, reviewed by, any of these terms? As long as you define what that means in your procedure, generally, you're pretty good. And everything I'm telling you here, I can't say this is going to work perfectly for any management system standard you're going against. But the vast majority, if you follow these rules, you're good. The last thing is we really need to talk about our records. And we've got a few types of records. We've got what we'll call our uh, QMS records or our management system records. This is going to be evidence of your competence and training. This can be evidence of your non-conformance reports, your corrective action reports, your MOCs, uh, management of change, your ECNs, engineering change notifications. Mind you, those last two are not called out specifically by ISO 9001. There's just some reasons you may or may not want to use those. But we're talking about management system records there. My recommendation is strongly to have a quality management system in place. If you don't have a quality management system and we're managing all of this with uh, Word and Excel forms and logs, that's fine. Let's make sure that our management system records are maintained well. Then we have our production records over here. Production records can include your job traveler, your work scopes, your sign-offs on all of those. Again, define how all of that is handled. And I don't mean to the minute detail of when the welder finishes, you know, the post-weld, blah, 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 blah. He initials this, then this, then this. No, you're, you're locking yourself in too much. But something as simple as the job traveler will be reviewed in full with no blanks. Okay, well, cool. I don't know what a blank means. You might know what the blank means, but no one else does. Any steps that were omitted are to be marked out and initialed by the supervisor or management. Cool. When the job is completed, all records associated with that project are to be stored in the job folder or the job file or whatever you want to call it. Um, maybe you scan it in and store it in a network file share. Maybe you put it in a file cabinet. Maybe you put it in a shoebox. Doesn't really matter as long as you say what you do and you do it consistently. So this basic stuff. Document information isn't that difficult as long as we don't make it difficult. Um, with the advantage of all of the, and this we're all finished here, with the advantage of all the technology we have here, again, whether it's QMS software, whether it's Excel spreadsheets, whether it's smart sheets or some other tool that's out there, whatever it might be, we've got a lot more tools at our disposal now to where we can filter and uh, select data and search for it that wasn't very common even 10 and 20 years ago. 
granted, these tools aren't terribly new, but they weren't very common um, back then. So what people focused on very strongly were codes. We had to have a code to tell us what it was. I've been a part of that. Again, when I was at the gas turbine uh, facility, you could tell by the name of an inspection document everything about it. You knew, was this a GE or a Siemens Westinghouse document? You uh, you knew if this was for the uh, buckets. You knew if this was for the rotor. You knew if this were the combustion section, the stationary section, whatever it was. You knew what it was. You knew the exact part that it went to. And you knew any information you had, we had that coded in the file name. I won't lie. That's kind of nifty. There's some value to it. I still kind of like it, and I hate getting away from it. But what that meant is every time a new document had to be added, you had to have a document control person to go over and figure out exactly what that document name should be, especially if it's something new. Because um, in any case, we can get into the funds of a gas turbine world there. But uh, sometimes you can have new parts, and it's kind of a weird, weird experience. But um, it doesn't have to be that complex. Only if you have a really, really good reason to add the complexity of specific codes in there, don't. I prefer to add a three-digit pre, three prefix for the document type, PRO for procedure, WRK or PWK for either work instruction or process work instruction. Depends on the language and culture of the company as to kind of what we go with there. FRM for form, you know, DWG for drawing, right? Just so that we can look at it immediately and know what it is without having to open it. But other than that, try to stay away from complex codes and complex numbering systems and document the simple ones you have. Beautiful thing to remember is you can always make something more complex, but it is near impossible to scale that complexity back successfully. So I really I say this every time, and I truly mean it. I really hope this stuff is helpful to you. I hope it adds some value to your workplace because Lord knows when I was first putting all of these systems in place around about 2008, 2009, 2010, I would have given my right arm almost to, to have access to information of how do I do this? Because there's no shortage of overly intellectual articles out there, and I guess that's all well and good, but most small shops have a hard time putting that in place and they make a lot of assumptions that not everyone has. So again, I really hope this is a value. If it is, let me know. If it's not, let me know. We can find some other topics to talk about if need be, but uh, that, that's all I've got for you here. So I hope you guys enjoyed and I hope you have a great day. Y'all take care.